of God's word. Today's scripture passage is Luke 19, 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And when they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, South. And it is, every time I think about the Dow ministry, um, I'm grateful for Heidi and the work that they do. Isn't it neat to see the way that that song just comes alive with a few sticks and some dark outfits and um, girls that put in a ton of work to uh, think that through. So what a neat way to see the scriptures and that song come alive. Uh, We are, as we said, journeying through this Lenten season as a church, and and we're exploring these different encounters that Jesus had with people throughout the Gospel of Luke. And in some of those encounters, people are called, and in some of those encounters, people are healed, and in other encounters, people are challenged or rebuked. And today, what we're going to see is Jesus marching into Jerusalem and just turning the tables on religion. 
See, Jerusalem at the time of Passover would be akin to New York City on New Year's Eve. Uh, it, It was like Times Square, just absolutely ready to burst with excitement and ready to burst with energy. And Ryan Seacrest, certainly there, um, commentating on the whole thing. Uh, maybe not, maybe not. But, but there was that excitement. Have you ever felt that type of excitement? My guess is when a, a city hosts the, the Super Bowl, there's that type of excitement. When there's a, a significant parade or an event happening, there's that type of excitement. But the city of Jerusalem usually floated around about 100,000 inhabitants. But on the week of Passover, it would swell to, Josephus, one of the early church historians, says that there was 2.7 million people in this city on this day. And can you imagine, for 1,446 years, the Israelites had been celebrating the Passover feast. It, it was a time in the rhythm of their year where they looked back, they looked back at God's redemption and bringing them out of, of Egypt and saving them from the Pharaoh's hand with a, a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It was their story that they told every single year. But for 600 years, it was a story that they told, but a reality that they had never seen because they were under the hand of the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. The only reason they came out of captivity was to be transferred to somebody else's. And so you can imagine, as they look back at this Passover deliverance and this meal that they celebrated, reminding themselves of God's deliverance and God's goodness, it must have seemed like a fairy tale. It must have seemed like It was just a pie-in-the-sky sort of religious type of hope or propaganda that weak people hold on to because they can't face the reality of the way life actually is. My guess is that's the way it felt. And still the people flooded to Jerusalem, and still the people had this hope that just maybe, maybe, God would once again deliver his people. And their hope started to have a name. Because for three years, Jesus had been traveling and he had been been healing people. The the blind would see again, the lame would walk, the sick were restored. And he would teach Jesus, he would teach and he would say things like, the kingdom of God is not coming someday, but it's at hand. That God is at work once again in this nation, in this people, bringing about the hope that you actually have. And so the temperature started to rise. The hope started to swell. The dreams started to be reborn. And there was just this murmuring, this undertone, this groundswell of maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the hope that we longed for. 2.7 million people. Jerusalem like a tinderbox. Jesus healing, Jesus restoring, and Jesus telling his disciples, hey, go steal me a donkey. (laughs) Right? I mean, you read it. 
Go, go steal me a donkey. Go take a donkey. It's never been ridden. And I want you to go. I want you to talk to a guy about a donkey. If anybody asks, just tell him the Lord needs it. Right? Like that's going to go over well. Like, hey, buddy, that's my donkey. Um, the Lord needs it. Well, okay, sure. Why not? Why don't you have my coat too? And my other car that's in the garage. And right? I mean, go, how would you like to be the two disciples that got chosen for that mission, right? That's one of those don't make eye contact with him moments, right? I need two volunteers to go steal a donkey. Mm. Choose John, right? Or Peter, he's always got his foot in his mouth. He'll do it. And so they march into town, right? And they talk to a guy about a donkey. And sure enough, he says, if you need my unridden colt for the Lord, take it. Take it. Which, by the way, if you're going to march into a city and declare yourself the king, you don't choose a donkey. It would be like showing up to Sturgis with a moped, okay? And trying to pretend like you're hardcore, right? Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Jesus, right? No, you don't do it. You don't. Do it. You ride in on a stallion. You ride in on a white stallion and you say, I'm Jesus. I'm here to take up my kingship. Mike, drop Jesus out. That's how you do it. You don't ride a moped. You ride a Harley. That's what you do. But Jesus was making it absolutely crystal clear for anybody that wanted to hear he was the king. And he was about to take his throne. The prophet Zechariah, he wrote about it. The nation of Israel, they longed for it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. That's good news, is it not? Your king's coming. He holds salvation. It's yours. He's humble, mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. See, that's why Jesus chooses a donkey. Because he's not the king that's going to come and kill his enemies. He's the king who's going to come and die for his enemies. He's unlike any king they've ever crowned. And really unlike any king they've ever wanted and so they, they gather around the side of the road as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and his disciples, probably pilgrims from the countryside who are gathering in the city to celebrate the fa Passover festival, they declare about this Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, some of the other gospel writers say that they, they claimed and they said, Hosanna! This is our God, and he's coming to save. I love it. In, in verse 37, Luke says that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, can you imagine this scene with people along the side of the road? I was blind, and now I see I was unable to walk, and I walked here. Praise you, Jesus. I was possessed by a demon. It was really weird and really crazy, but now I'm, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm clear of mind. 
I mean, just this praise chorus welcoming him to his city and declaring, make no mistake about it, everybody in the crowd understood what they were doing. They were crowning a what? King. A king. They're saying now our lives are going to revolve around you. Now our lives are going to point to you. And, and what the, the, the Jewish people are doing is they're, they're pulling from their Old Testament out of Psalm chapter 118, and they're using that language to say Jesus is our king. Ironically, ironically, it's also one of the Psalms that they would read during the Passover feast as they drank four cups, reminding themselves of God's past provision and pointing towards God's future restoration, they would recite Psalm 118 in hope that God would do what he'd done, that he'd restore, that he would fix what was broken. And their hope, everybody gathering along the side of this road, everybody taking off their cloak, everybody laying it down and grabbing a palm branch and laying it down, they're making way for a Messiah. They're making way for a king. They are making a declaration. Jesus of Nazareth is our king. And you know what they get right? They get right that restoration begins with coronation. Then any restoring work that God does in a, in a nation, in a city, in a soul, in a marriage, here's what they get right. That God begins to work when we declare him king. That when we lift his name high, he says, oh yeah, that, that's when I'll enter into that space. I will take up my throne. I will begin to rule. And they're giving Jesus his rightful due, and they're putting Jesus in his rightful place. See, there's, there's a lot that they get wrong over the next week in the city of Jerusalem. And, and some pastors will t- take this passage and go, man, people are so fickle in faith, right? You've heard this, right? One Saturday, they crown him, and then on Friday, they say crucify him. Well, while that preaches really well, it's just simply not true. I mean, it's most likely a different group of people that the Pharisees stir up, that the chief priests stir up, that they gather their own crew to come and say, now Jesus isn't the Messiah that we'd hoped for. Look, our nation looks the exact same as it always looked. And so the powers that be see Jesus come in as king, and they start to manipulate. They start to choose sides. But his disciples, they get it right. Because restoration in your life, restoration in my life, begins with coronation. Because whatever king is on the throne of our heart will determine the course of our life. Whatever we put as ultimate importance, whatever we say gets to, gets to speak into our heart, into our life, and, and guide us is the very thing that will determine the course that we walk. So the question we have to wrestle with this morning is, what sits on that throne? And after Jesus is declared as the king, and isn't it interesting, he says, listen, even if you didn't cry out, the rocks would, which makes me, I read this and go, huh, like I sort of wish they wouldn't have. I would have loved to have seen the rock chorus, right? I'm sure they had a lot of guitar. (laughs) Pun intended. 
So Jesus is crowned as king. You need to follow the narrative here. And then he goes, he looks, he's on a hill looking over Jerusalem. And he, his first thing he does as king is what? He cries. He weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how long I wish to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her brood, but you were unwilling. That's the way Matthew recounts it. And he weeps. Because here's what he knows. He knows that this coronation, this crowning him was the action of a few, but it wasn't the heart of many. And he knows that as quickly as they crowned him, there was going to be others that would rise up and say, crucify him. And he knows, he knows that the restoration that the nation of Israel longed for, the restoration that we longed for was simply a coronation away, but they didn't really mean it. And everything they longed for, everything they hoped for was going to pass them by. And don't you love that our God is a kind of God who weeps, who weeps over his people making terrible decisions, who weeps over his people resisting his grace and love, who weeps over his people being a coronation away from restoration and resisting it with everything they have. I love that the first thing that Jesus does as king is he weeps because he's invested, because he loves, because he longs to see his creation invited into life. Now, here's the second thing he does. Here's the second thing he does. And he entered into the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. So the first thing he does is he weeps. The second thing he does is he remodels. That's what he does, right? I don't know if you know this, but ever since um, President Bill Clinton served as our president, the presidents have received a budget of $100,000 to remodel certain rooms of the White House when they move in. Uh, that's your money and my money. Um, but here's the thing. I think it's good. I want the president to feel at home in the White House. I want them to feel like this is my space and I get to operate in here in a way that fits me. So if President Trump wants gold-plated curtains, if he can do it under 100 grand or chip in his own money, go for it. You've got to live there, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's going extreme home makeover on the temple. I don't know if there's ship lap involved or not, but he's going for it. And why is that significant? Why does it, why does it matter that the, one of the first things Jesus does, they lay down their coats, they put their palm branches up, they say, Hosanna, they say, you're our king. He weeps and then he marches into the temple and he just starts to wreck shop on it. Who cares? Well, every Jewish person would have cared. Because the temple was the center of the Jewish life. I mean, it was the center for them religiously. It was the place where they met with God. It was the center for them sacrificially. It was the place where they brought their offering to God and were brought back into right relationship with God. 
It was a center for them politically, as a nation. It, it was the center of everything they communally, as a people, held together. The temple was at the center. And so when Jesus walks into the temple, he walks into the center and he makes this declaration. You may look good on the outside. You may have all of your systems in place and you may have all the boxes checked. But on the inside, you're rotten. On the inside, at the, at the core of who you are as a community, you've, you've gone awry. You've gone off course. See, the temple was intended to be as the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 2. It was intended to be a, a light to the nations. It was intended to draw people. It shall come to pass in the latter days, Isaiah writes, that the mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And say it with me, church. And all the nations shall flow to it that they might be restored, that they might be healed that they might find the thing that their soul looks for. And Jesus says, listen, the center of your life, the center of the community, the center of interaction with God has grown rotten, like cutting into a piece of fruit that looks good on the outside and getting down to the middle and seeing that it's rotting from the inside out. That's what's gone on. That's what's happened. He makes a statement. My house shall be a house of prayer. That was God's design. That was what he intended for the, the temple to be. But, but, you have made it into a den of robbers. Um, there was really two ways, and this is just a, a quick history lesson. If you don't like that, um, you can check out for two minutes. I'll invite you back um, after just two minutes. But there's two primary ways that the temple was turned into a den of robbers. One was through the money changers. See, there's about five denotations of currency in, the, um, in Israel at this time. And yet there was only one that was accepted in the temple. It was the, the sanctuary coin or the Galilean shekel. And so what would happen is people would come to Jerusalem on their um, Passover pilgrimage and they would want to pay the temple tax, which every Jewish male had to pay every single year. And you had to pay it in exact change. You could pay it in your hometown at a tax booth that was set up roughly a month before Passover. But most people chose to pay it at the temple itself. And so you would show up with your other money and you'd have changers, money changers, as you got into the temple saying, oh, hey, we can do an exchange rate for you. We can give you the approved temple money, but we're not going to give you a good deal. We're not, we're not going to give you a good exchange rate. When we were in, in Mexico a few weeks ago, um, the exchange rate of pesos to dollars was roughly 19.5 to 1, unless you had dollars and needed pesos, right? Then it was about 10 to 1, depending on where you were at. It's the same thing going on here, that they're marching into the temple and they're getting absolutely robbed. Money changers, number one. Number two, you had these people selling animals. 
and you needed to have an animal, quote-unquote, without blemish to sacrifice. And so here's what people would do as they were getting closer to the temple. Some people would try to bring an animal with them from whatever their hometown was, which was dangerous because journeying through the countryside, those animals could easily get picked off by predators. The other thing that would happen is you would parade a goat up to the temple and you would have somebody from the high priest's court go, hey, can I take a closer look at that goat? Because it certainly looks like there's a blemish behind its right ear. Or is your goat limping a little bit? That's not without blemish. I have another goat here that I could sell you at an absolutely inflated and terrible price. So what's going on? Well, money changers and animal sellers are picking off people as they're walking up to the temple. This place that's intended to be a way of meeting with God and interacting with God has turned into a place where people get beat down by religious systems that have gone away from the heart of God. So Jesus says, I set this up as a place where people could meet with me. But you turned it into a place where people get robbed. So you read through the Gospels, and there's very few things that tick Jesus off more than religious systems being used to distance people from God rather than bring them to him. And so when he walks into the temple, And in John chapter 2, braids a whip and turns over tables. In Luke chapter 19, when he drives out the money changers and the animal sellers, when he walks into the temple, he's been crowned as king, but now he's waging war. He's waging war on a system that has gone off course from the way that it was intended to operate. There's very few things that make Jesus more angry than religious systems distancing people from God rather than bringing to him because his heart is for you. Because his heart is that you would come into contact with him and into relationship with him rather than to be kept away. And see, when Jesus says, listen, it was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers, there's a whole lot more underneath the surface than Jesus hoping that people would gather in his temple just simply or only to pray. Now, certainly it is about prayer, but there was a lot of other things that happened in the temple as well. In the temple courts, there was teaching. In the temple, there was sacrifice. There's layers to what Jesus is saying. It would be akin to him saying, You came to the hospital to get healed, but you walked away with a disease. That happened, right? Um, Agnes Simmelweis, in 1846, he started to recognize that there were two wards in this hospital that delivered babies. One of them was where doctors delivered the babies, So they were doing other surgeries, and then they'd be called in, hey, doc, we need a baby delivered. And he's like, I'm here. Um, And so they would show up. On the other ward, midwives delivered the babies. And that's all they did. And what he started to recognize is these two wards have very, very different rates of infant mortality. The ones where the doctors are delivering it, those babies seem to die far more often than the babies delivered by the midwives. And so, 
Agnes proposed, hey, doctors, maybe we should start washing our hands in between surgery and delivering the baby, which for them was like, what? And what he identified was that the transfer of disease didn't happen just in the air or because of evil spirits, but it actually happened hand-to-hand contact with a sick person and a well person, and the sickness was transferred. And so he's lobbying for this with his life. Why? Because people were going to be born, and they were actually dying. They were going to be healed, and they caught the disease. The same thing's happening in the temple. They're going to be healed. They're going to meet with God. And they're being weighed down by a religious system that even the religious people can't keep up with. I don't know about you, but I love it that that ticks Jesus off. I love it that he's the kind of king who's going to walk into the temple and turn over the tables and go, I know I rode in on a donkey, but what now? (laughs) Right? Like, this is a declaration of war. He's passionate about restoring people to God. It was a den of robbers, but it was intended to be a house of prayer. So the question is, how do those things play out as we look deeper beneath the surface of just that den of robbers and house of prayer? What's Jesus saying? What's he coming to restore? What's the king remodeling? Well, here's what he's doing. First, he is restoring the temple to a place of awakening rather than oppression. That they were always intended to walk into the temple. And you probably have some flowers in the front of your yard or backyard right now. We have, we have a number of tulips that are pushing through that really hard winter dirt and they're starting to bloom and come alive again. For the Jewish mind, the temple was intended to be that. The people would walk in and they would go, oh yeah, oh yeah. The presence of God is here in a, in a significant way. The mercy of God is thick in this place. They were intended to walk in, and and as the Jewish mind would have thought, the the temple was the place where where earth and heaven, uh, to quote them, overlapped. It was this place of awakening. It was this place place of life, but the money changers and the high priest and the animal sellers had turned it into a place of, of oppression. Listen to the way that the prophet Ezekiel talks about the intent of the temple. He paints this picture in Ezekiel 47, of water that flows from the temple, flows out of the temple. And he talks about the intent of that water. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because, of the, water, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This was the intention. And so Jesus walks into the temple and when he turns over the tables, he's going, you've made it about oppression. But for me, it's always been about awakening. 
Awakening people to the life that God has for them. Awakening people to the DNA and the, and the fact that you are an image bearer of the most high God. That's what we hope. Every time you come into contact with, with the God of the universe, we should get this overwhelming sensation of the reality that we carry his image. And that wakes people up. But they become oppressive rather than people who awaken. Second thing that Jesus does in turning over the tables, in awakening people, he says, listen, you've built all these barriers, but I've come to build bridges. You've made religion about keeping people out rather than finding a way to invite people in. I love it that our God turns tables over because his people became builders of blockades and barriers rather than crafters of bridges. We're a light to the nations. We're a city on a hill. Our goal is not to keep people out, but to invite people in. And so when the money changers and the animal sellers at the door are jacking the prices up, jacking the price up for people to get back in right relationship with God, jacking the price up for people to find hope, to find forgiveness, jacking the price up for people to have the realization that they're loved by the king of it all, Jesus goes, not in my house, not when I'm king. Because when I'm king, the offer of forgiveness will be held out to everyone. The hope will be held out to all. And I will make a way for the person who's the furthest away from me and has made the absolute biggest mess of their life to be brought back into right relationship with me. That's his heart. Ironically, ironically, the word priest in the Latin actually means bridge builder. And you are a kingdom of priests. It's a whole lot easier to build a wall than it is to build a bridge. It is. Literally, and figuratively, I mean, I could probably build a wall. Right. A bridge, now that takes skill. It takes skill relationally. Anybody can build walls relationally. Just be a jerk. <laughs> right? It's a lot harder to build bridges. It takes way more intentionality. It takes way more thoughtfulness. It takes thinking about people. And from, from the very beginning, the early church has embraced the ethos of being bridge builders, not wall builders. In, in the very beginning, in the incipient stages of the life of the church, they came to this crossroads. Because there was a number of people converting to Christianity who didn't have a, a Jewish background. They, they weren't people who'd grown up around the, the Jewish story. And so many of the males were uncircumcised. And the church got together in its very early stages and they had this conversation. Do men who have converted to Christianity, who do not have a Jewish background, background and are not circumcised, do they need to be circumcised in order to be followers of Jesus? Now, 
if you're a male, you have a vested interest in the way that meeting goes. <laughs> so they have in Acts chapter 15, you can read about it. In Acts chapter 15, they have what's called the Jerusalem Council. And here's what they decide. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not make it, let's not make it harder than it has to be. They have, if their faith is in Jesus, who cares if they're circumcised or not? They're welcome. From the very beginning of the church's life, their goal was let's build bridges, not walls which has huge implications for the way that we interact at our workplaces, has huge interactions for the way that we live as a church and a community of faith in God's good world. It has huge implications for the way that we interact in our families. See, they were walking into the temple in hopes of being forgiven, but they, what they heard was, you're not welcome here. As D.L. Moody says, the voice of sin is loud, but the for voice of forgiveness is louder. That's the heart of Jesus, but it was being drowned out by all these other things. And don't those blockades just prey on every insecurity we have inside of us? That we don't deserve to be here. That we're not welcome here. That somehow our, our sin's going to find us out and the passage that his grace is greater than our sin will not hold water on the day we need it to. And when Jesus turns over the temple, over, over the tables in the temple, he says, no, your God is for you. He's for awakening, not oppression. He's for bridges, not barriers. He's for communion, not coercion. Unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, we have gotten the reputation, some of it very rightful, uh, for being a people who are about manipulation or coercion rather than meeting and welcome. I think of one example. Um, John Tetzel was a um, Roman Catholic leader. And one of the jobs he was commissioned by the Pope to do was raise money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So he traveled around the countryside in, in Italy and the surrounding areas, and he had this phrase that he would tell people. He would say, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So you give a little money, and your dead relatives will really be grateful. Hey, it's a great way to build a cathedral. You can go check it out. It worked. It's a terrible way to invite people into relationship with God. See, because God wants to meet with you, not manipulate you. The beautiful thing about being in a relationship with Jesus is you know that he needs absolutely nothing from you. He calls out the stars by name every night. He holds the entire world together by the very breath of his mouth. He's not up in the heavens wringing his hands going, oh man, I hope Paulson comes through for me. I don't know what I'm going to do if he doesn't. No, he has every resource at his fingertips. He's God. So you can rest assured that the reason he wants to meet with you is not because he wants to manipulate you, but because he wants to love you and because he's passionately 
for you. And when Jesus flips the tables over, it's because he wants people to know God's not interested in getting something from them. He wants to give something to them. And man, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to lay down my coat for. That's the kind of God that I want to wave a palm branch and lay down and welcome him as king and crown him as king because he not only goes into the temple and turns over the tables and he shifts manipulation for meeting and he shifts coercion for communion and he invites you not to be taken advantage of by God but to be welcomed home. And then, and then, in the giving of his life and the spreading of his arms, he walks into the most high temple. The, the high temple that that earthly temple is just a shadow of. He walks into the throne room of God. And he wipes that slate clean too. So you may be wondering, hey, Paulson, why in the world would I lift this king high? Why in the world would I lay down my coat and welcome him into my life? Well, here, here's what I would say back to you. If you were to ask me that question today, here's what I would say. I would say that you can lay down your coat and welcome him as king because he laid down his life. Because a week later on Calvary's hill, he's going to spread his arms and he's going to shed his blood. And in doing so, he steps into the holy of holies, into that throne room of God, and he clears those tables too, and he clears your guilt, and he clears your shame, and he welcomes you back into relationship with God, not because of anything that you could do, but because of what he has done. This high priest, instead of taking advantage of people, gives his life for his people. Instead of keeping people out of his temple, he makes a way to welcome us home. And instead of taking from us, he gives his very life for us. Ironically, the high priest was the one who was able to set up the booths inside the temple courts to sell people animals. The high priest was the one ripping people off. And so when the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a better temple, that he's the better high priest, that he's made a way, not by means of the blood of goats, but by means of his own blood and securing an eternal redemption for us and purifying us, friends. In the same way he cleansed that temple, he cleanses your life. So as we celebrate Palm Sunday... We're reminded that his restoration begins with coronation, begins with crowning him as king. And as we do that, I would invite you to think about just three things as you practice this this week. One, that we would obey his way. The way of the donkey, not of the stallion. The way of humility, not of power and authority. The way of giving our lives for people rather than killing our enemies 
Read the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way of our King. Matthew 5 through 7. That we would obey his way. That we would trust his heart. He's the God who weeps over us. You can trust him. You can coronate him. He is good. And finally, that we would be the type of people who obey his way, who trust his heart, and who embrace his mission. May we, South Fellowship, be a church that builds bridges, not walls, that brings awakening instead of oppression, and that invites people to communion with God rather than coercion and manipulation. That's our king. May we live in his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh man, before we go rushing out of here, I just want to invite you to take a deep breath. Envision yourself along the side of that Palm Sunday road. What's your posture to this king? Jesus, we long for you to to reach into the broken places of our soul. The places of, of shame, the places of regret, the places of hopelessness. The places that we years ago blocked you off from and figure there's no way you could break into. Would you march into those places today, Jesus, and turn over some tables? Father, we, we crown you as king, and we pray that you would begin the restoration, the, the awakening, the bridges, the communion that come along with that coronation. Would you begin that in our life? Would you begin that in our marriages? Would you begin that in the dreams that we have that we've let go of? Would you do that in our relationships? Jesus, we crown you as king, and we long for the restoration that you promised to bring. Would you help us live in your way? with your heart on your mission this week, we pray in the name of Jesus.